Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Thanks for tuning in to listen to this episode of the Global Marketing Show. What do you get when you combine HP, Adobe, and Rico? Well, today you're going to find out because Fernando Menieni is here to talk to us. He's a seasoned marketing leader with more than 20 years experience in the high-tech industry with responsibilities, senior responsibilities at HP. Adobe and Rico. So that's what they have in common. He's got experience in B2C and B2B across multiple geographies within Latin America region. So he's really a specialist on how you launch into to Latin America and South America. So Fernando, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today because I know so many times people in the United States will just say, okay, we're going to go into Latin America. But you really pointed out to me when we were talking earlier that there's 33 different countries and they all have their own personality. So I'd love for you to start out and just talk about what are some of the differences in the countries in Latin America? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Actually, as you mentioned, 33 countries, there are big countries like Brazil, Mexico, smaller countries in Central America and Caribbean islands. Uh, you have also countries uh, around 30 to 40 million uh, people like Colombia, like uh, Peru, Chile. So I would say despite Brazil that speak Portuguese, uh, most of them speak Spanish. And that's the only common thing between them. The rest are exactly what you said. I mean, each market is different depending on the industry you are, depending on the on the segment you're targeting, uh, they might have their own differences. And, and that's the main, I would say, the first uh, mistake people take uh, when they talk about Latin America. They used to consider the region as one, and when actually you have 33 countries. So if you really want to, to go deep, you need to dig into the details. Again, depending on the market, depending on what, what you're looking for. But that's the, the first starting point. 33 countries. Uh, the only commonality, at least for 32, uh, or most of them actually, is uh, the, the, the common language. That's it. Down into an example. I mean, imagine you're talking to a business owner that has a limited budget and they're thinking, well, I'll go into Latin America and I'll start with Spanish because it covers so many countries. Now, talk to me about when you can get away with this and when you can't. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk. Well, uh, I'm sorry because I have a certain bias because I'm Brazilian. So I always going to put a little bit of Brazil on that. As I, I mentioned, it's the only country that speaks Portuguese. Uh, but you're right. If you if you want to start in Latin America, please avoid Brazil at first. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not only because of the language, but it's the most complex country. Not uh, in, not in terms of logistics. Uh, first of all, it's. Uh, continental country, uh, big distances, uh, as well the taxation is very difficult, uh, very difficult for uh, someone outside Brazil to understand, even for me to understand, for us Brazilians, is very difficult to understand. So that's uh, the first point. The other countries, uh, most of them speak Spanish. And uh, as I mentioned, they have uh, different uh, concepts. So usually uh, when we talk about Central America, um, you see that some of the companies that are there they actually are in, in, in three or four countries at least. So they, they, they tend to act as a conglomerate uh, of countries, if you are a, a community of countries. Mexico is the largest one. Uh, I would say is the easiest one for Americans especially to, be, uh, to start with, uh, especially because uh, they're number one, uh, logistics much easier, especially if you're shipping from the US or having the, some kind of uh, logistics facilities uh, that, that are going to, to be shared. Also, Mexico shares a lot of brands as well. So most of the American brands you can find in Canada, but you can also find in Mexico too. You can find also local brands too, but uh, there are more similarities uh, 
for US in Mexico than you can find, by example, in Argentina. That's another country, by example, which is a big market, but it's very, very difficult too. I mean, just like Brazil, Argentina is suffering a lot now with uh, economic crisis. Uh, it came before, even before COVID, but I mean, Argentina, it's a beautiful country. It has a beautiful potential, but it's very complex too. Hyperinflation, um, the, the government now, they have a lot of restrictions in terms of employment. So uh, it's a more complex country. Chile, it's a very open country. It's just the opposite. I mean, usually uh, companies like uh, American companies or uh, foreign companies like to do business in Chile because of, of uh, the openness of its market. So that's something you need to take in consideration when you're talking about Latin America. And I'm not even touching, uh, let's say, things like culture, right? I mean, culture in Mexico is totally different than culture in Brazil. It's totally different than culture in Chile. That's another point. Uh, let me give an example. In, in, in Latin America in particular, not only Brazil, but mostly in Brazil, WhatsApp is the most used main, uh, uh, channel of communication between consumers and the companies. Uh, can you imagine that? I mean, it's not used for, for personal issues. It's used for business issues. So it's, uh, it's something that sometimes you don't know, but I mean, it's, it's something important. Also, Another important That's very thing. Very interesting to me because whenever I've gone over to Europe, WhatsApp is completely used for personal and not for business. Yeah, in Brazil, in Latin America in general, especially in Brazil, it was initially being used for for for, for personal purpose, but it expanded very fast uh, to business because also, especially in the South, Chile, Brazil, and Argentina, uh, we are very tech. I mean, the the adoption of social media. I think Brazil is number two in some of the platforms that, that are available. So uh, social media and the internet adoption is very high in, mm -hmm. in America. They are very techy. I mean, uh, and that's something, another, another concept that's called the leapfrog. Uh, I don't know if you know about the concept, but uh, by example, when I got married uh, a long time ago, <laughs> I remember my, my, my father-in-law, he gave me a phone line. I said, what? He said, it's a phone line. Why are you giving me a phone line? Well, I was very young, so I didn't know and I couldn't understand. But he told me, did you try to get a phone line right now to buy one? You can't. Uh, and if you want to buy a phone line, you need to buy from a third party, from someone else. And you need to pay for 20, from twenty dollars to $30,000 a phone line. I don't have a phone line today, a landline today, right? But by the time, I would say, uh, for, um, almost uh, 30 years ago, I mean, a phone line, uh, was uh, a luxury uh, in country like Brazil. Obviously, I'm talking uh, in the, in, as the starting of the new century, what happened is uh, new companies start like uh, Telefonica, US companies uh, went down to, to those countries. And today it's, it's fairly available, but the time was very difficult. So what happened is actually most of the population couldn't have access at the time to a landline, but as privatization started, they had very easy access uh, to cell phone, to mobile phones. So that's what we call the leapfrog. The same in the, in the banking industry. Uh, I would say, I'm not sure if the number is correct, but between 70 to 80% of uh, the population in Latin America doesn't have a, a banking account. So it's a leapfrog to new technologies offered by the fintechs because that's what happens when you have this uh, huge delay in this kind of commodities for us here in the US, but there it's not available. It's simply very difficult. So that, that's what happened in Latin America, usually this leapfrog from what would say, they skip the, the basic technology and they go to the newest and the, the high tech offer that's available there. Make sense? Yes, it does. And I have heard that about the electronic payments are a lot more prevalent down in the Latin American countries than they are here in the United States. So that's, that's, that's okay. So, that, that's why. And, I, and I've heard about the leapfrogging from, you know, skipping over the landlines to the cell that that's very common in Africa too. Correct. And, and yeah. I, I think that's the, the root cause why Latin America is so high tech. Uh, I mean, why they like uh, internet, they like, uh, they, they, they accept those technology uh, in, a, in a way that's uh, much faster than other countries around the world. Hmm. Okay, so a lot of the stuff I've heard now is that 
if you understand those cultural differences, and there's a lot of similarities with tech and language that you could, as an American company, say, I'm going into Latin America and start in Mexico, it's easy, and then expand from that. What are some of the differences between the countries that you've seen? I, I, I say the difference, uh, let me give an example in my last position. I call it uh, peel the onion. The big problem when you manage, and now I'm talking about it when you manage a region, when you have, my last company I used to have, we used to have 12 operations, 12 subsidiaries. So if you have which, a market wait, Which country was this? No, it was uh, in, in all the countries. So 12 countries along in, across the region. The problem I would like to, to mention is when you have uh, numbers like uh, I was in the tech industry, so I use a lot of IDC numbers, you have the market share, right? So you see, you have 30% of market share. Wow, that's an amazing market share. You're number one. So if you see that number sometimes in a regional level, that's, that's uh, the message I'd like to convey here, is uh, it can trick you because you need to really peel the onion and you need to see country by country how your market share is in, in that specific country. And sometimes uh, the competition is different in every single country. And sometimes uh, in a country, maybe you are number five, number six, an important country like Mexico or Brazil, and uh, you're, you're leading in the smaller countries, which is okay. But by the end of the day, it represents an opportunity. So my recommendation is don't treat, if you, let's say, if you are in Latin America, don't treat the, the, the continent as or, or the region as one. You really need to peel the onion. You need to go country by country, see your position country by country, who's your competition, what's the go-to-market in each country, what are the differences, and that's what's going to make the the, the, let's say, the, the, the best spot, the sweet spot uh, working Latin America, when you don't think it as a region, because I know that the US, uh, you have uh, 50 different states, they function differently, but by the end of the day, the infrastructure is very similar, uh, mm. and the currency is the one, we are one country, but when you're talking about 33 countries, you are talking about 33 countries, so logistics not the same, currency is not the same, taxation is not the same, and uh, business-wise, if you start digging market share, as I mentioned, I mean, your competition is not going to be the same. Healthcare is not going to be the same. Telecommunication is not going to be the same. So you really need to see it as 33 different countries and not assume one size fits all. I think that could be the biggest mistake by one side and the biggest opportunity if you understand how to do it well. That's an interesting list that you just said, you know, the logistics, currency, taxation, competition, telecom, healthcare. That's a good place to start when you're looking at different countries to go into to, to do a grid across with the countries and the different variables of what you'd want to look at. Yeah. And if you and if you go to specifics, like I mentioned, healthcare, it's going to be totally different. I mean, for me, it was very difficult coming from Brazil to the U.S., to understand healthcare here, very difficult uh, to understand uh, how it works. I mean, uh, it, it was totally different. And, and uh, I'm assuming I'm not coming from China. I'm coming from, from the Western industry. So uh, I don't see, I mean, these kind of functions like healthcare or segments, if you will, working in the same way. They're totally different. And you, need, you must understand, and as I said, not only the entire region, but you need to understand count by country, how it works. I mean, sometimes it's more state, uh, it's more privatized. Sometimes, for example, Brazil, uh, let's say, is the health system in Brazil good? I mean, if I get ill, if I get, uh, let's say, a, a problem there, I'm in good hands. I mean, it's going to be okay. Yes and no, depends. If, if you have money, you can go to a private hospital. I would prefer to be in Brazil, to be honest. Indeed, I talked to my daughters there by phone. Can you do that here in the U.S.? I can actually mm -hmm. talk through WhatsApp. Here they don't answer me. Uh, hopefully, their assistants are going to answer me. That's the difference. There, no. There, you can talk to them. There is more personal touch. And so if you really have the ability to pay for a private service in Brazil, just an example, or in Chile, maybe, you're going to be in very good hands. But by the other hand, if you don't have the resources, obviously, the experience is going to be the other extreme. So that's what you need to understand when you go in different, uh, let's say, 
segments in different industries in Latin America. You need to understand this, this in the cross, how you say in English, in the cross. The intersection, the what? In the cross, well, uh, forget about that. Do you know how to say it in Spanish? I, in the cross, in, in the ocracia. Oh, idiosyncrasies. Wow, very good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't speak uh, Portuguese, but I do speak a uh, little Spanish, so that one I could. It help. helps. It helps. It's it does. It does. There's words all the time. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. I just want to go off on a tangent here. You know, you know, different healthcare systems all over the, you know, probably 33 different countries. What what one do you think does it the best, and what and why? Like, what's the setup of it? Or if you had to take the best of each one, what would you what would you do? Well, I'm not the expert in healthcare, to be honest. <laughs> That's just a personal touch. Now, I was talking to, to a friend that lives in Spain, and he told me, because I told him, I told him, hey, you guys are lucky. You have the best healthcare system in the world. He said, yes and no. If I get you, I prefer to be in Brazil, because they're obviously having money. You can choose the best care. But here, I mean, is the same for everybody. So if there is no spots in the hospitals for me, there is no spots. I need to wait as anybody else. So it depends. It really depends on, on the situation. But that's just a personal touch. I'm not an expert in health care. Oh, okay. That, well, that's interesting. It was a good little tangent there. <laughs> so back to, to Mexico, which was really interesting to me. You were talking about the large market and how it's easier to enter. And I've also heard that Mexico has the largest Spanish-speaking population in the world. And the country with the second largest Spanish-speaking population in the world is the United States. So did you see any of your countries leveraging the translation you might have used for the United States Spanish-speaking market and Mexico? Or did, or did you consider those two different markets? Well, so, so if we think about uh, linguistically speaking, and again, Spanish is not my first language, it's my second actually. What we, we talk, in, if you go to, to Microsoft Word or to any software, there will be a Latin America Spanish. That, that's what you're asking. So it's totally different uh, from the Spanish spoken in, in Spain. But Obviously, there are some countries that they, they are going to have their own languages, their own expressions, uh, their own words, sorry, and their own expressions. But uh, there is a commonality, I would say, in the Spanish from Latin America. And, and, and yes, for sure, Mexico is, uh, is, is a, a country where there is a big influence in the U.S., uh, especially because of immigration in Central America as well. So uh, there will be there. Uh, an interesting exercise to do, especially for Spanish-speaking people is to watch Netflix original. So I love to watch uh, Netflix productions uh, from Mexico and compare to the Spanish ones and compare to the Argentina one. I mean, it's amazing how different it is when you know the language, right? But business-wise, there, there is some commonality. So uh, this, the Latin American Spanish is quite the same uh, everywhere. You just need to eliminate uh, expressions that are very, very specific for each country. And here, the country that in Latin America that has more is Argentina. Argentina, if you if you hear, you're going to hear that the way of speaking is totally different. Usually, actually, when I was at HP, um, all the translations, I need to do a special one for Argentina sometimes, especially for consumer. So you worked at HP, Adobe, Enrico. Can you Talk me through how each of those companies handled the translations for their marketing. Well, usually the translation, as I mentioned, business-wise is exactly the same uh, for the for, for all, all, regardless of the company. Uh, we have the Latin America. We try to avoid the Argentinian, Argentinian uh, expression, especially uh, the way they speak, like uh, vos versus tu. Uh, that's one of the big uh, differences, but mostly, uh, uh, usually you can handle one uh, translation. If you are in consumer, especially when I work with uh, agencies like uh, McKenna Erickson or Publicis, I mean, uh, and you're doing a specific ad, uh, then it's different. Uh, so one thing is collateral, is common business uh, tax, but uh, when you're talking specifically about advertising, in Argentina, you used to have a different translation specifically for that country. 
Okay, so you would so even at the large companies, you would do one good Spanish translation and then a good Brazilian Portuguese translation to target the Latin American countries. Correct. And, yeah. and you, you can also leverage a start. The good starting point will be from Europe. I mean, you can get the Spanish and Portuguese materials from Europe. You can adapt. Uh, you can. Uh, uh, let's say Portuguese. Uh, the Portuguese from Portugal is slightly different, so probably you need to adapt uh, 10 to 20 percent, or no, actually 10 percent or less. There's some some expressions that uh, it's just like the U.S. and 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 in the U.K. or England, right? I mean, uh, sometimes uh, you're not going to say lorry, you're going to say truck. You're not going to say some words. So, so those are the words you need to get and, and try to, to convert what your or market is. But I would say most of, let's say from England, if you get a text, a business text, I would say 95% of the, of the text should be applicable uh, to the U.S. at mm -hmm. least. And then did you go out to an agency to handle your translation or did you have internal translators or people on the ground? How did you do it? No, uh, due to the volume that uh, the content that we generate in, in all the three companies I work for, it's huge. You cannot have that internal. You need to go. Uh, and usually we used to have two or three agencies who help us. Uh, and actually we split the job because the volume is so big, some, it's so, it's so high sometimes that you need to split the job. But there is another job that people don't think about, which is you need to read, you need to correct. So although someone is doing the job for you, you is, I mean, the marketing department is, is, is responsible or at least accountable uh, for the, the final result. So you need to check everything. So it's not only translating, but also you need to, to check everything. So translation is part of the job, but the, the checking is internal, I would say, and it's very time consuming, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot imagine how people in Europe do that. I mean, with so many languages, because we're talking about only two different versions in Latin America. Europe should be very more complex. Way did you, was your marketing department a global marketing department or did you have marketing departments by country or region? Usually the let's say the the brand the positioning is global you need to have a framework if you will globally and then you need you can adapt some things locally uh, especially when it goes to demand generation that's more local but whenever we're talking about brand or big problems they're more global oriented but what you need to have basically is a field marketing so field marketing uh, it's going to take those uh, those materials, the content created uh, globally or regionally, and they are going to implement uh, in a local fashion way. So the field marketing is, is key. So uh, my last uh, position um, in, in this company with 12 subsidiaries, there are at least 12 marketing managers in my team, one in each operation to make sure we used to have, uh, you're going to have this kind of uh, local flavor or local translation. And actually also to implement some of the strategies. And right now it's a little bit different, difficult to think about events, uh, physical events, stuff like that. But when it, it resumes, I mean, it's a big part. I mean, people still want to, uh, I mean, I know that uh, in the last two years uh, we got used to Zoom and to webinars, stuff like that. But I think that once we can go back and, and have this personal touch, it's going to come back. I mean, people need to see each other because by the end of the day, business is about trust and trust is about people. So that's why we have those local field marketing managers in the field uh, organizing uh, this kind of uh, marketing activities, uh, especially the, 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 the physical ones. Okay, so you're... I want to bring you down on some of the subjects into more detail about what you're talking about there. So your last position was with RICO? Correct. Okay. Can you talk about what your responsibilities were? And this is a larger company, but it helps give a vision for companies of all sizes of how a larger company might be doing it. So can you talk about what your organization looked like and who was responsible oh, sure. for what? Mm -hmm. So let me put in perspective. So HICO pre-pandemic was around 100,000 people around the world. In uh -huh. Latin America, we're talking about 3,000 people. In my department, marketing used to have around 40 to 50 people, just to put in perspective. 
And this was for Latin American marketing? For Latin America, correct. So 3,000 employees and uh, 40 to 50 in marketing functions, including mm -hmm. the, the, the field marketing. So around 20 in a regional level uh, to create content, campaigns, and stuff like that. And the other half, I would say, uh, at least 12, as I mentioned to you, was uh, the field marketing managers. In some countries, you have uh, three or four people, like Mexico and Brazil. So um, the structure I used to have there was uh, basically three uh, departments. The first one, I was responsible for problem marketing. So problem marketing is a regional function. And that's different because at HP, I used to have a problem marketing in each country. Uh, at Rico, you, we, we actually had uh, just uh, problem marketing in the regional level. We don't have in the local, in, in the country level. So that's, uh, that's how, it depends how each organization, uh, they structure the, the, the team. But basically the difference is because being a problem manager today for me is very different than it was in, in, in the past years. I mean, in the past years you need to be uh, I'm talking about 10, 15 years ago, you need to be the subject expert manager, um, the, the subject man, uh, matter expert, sorry, SME. So you need to be the person who knows the product. Usually you need to have uh, engineering background. Uh, you need really to know the product in, in very deep uh, concept, right? But uh, today I would say the product, not that people don't care about the product anymore, but I mean, you cannot go to a customer and say, hey, this problem has uh, 40 DPI, this problem has this, has that. I mean, they don't care. I mean, they, they have a problem, they have a pain, and they want uh, a company to solve their problem. So the, the, the problem manager today is uh, a totally different concept. Uh, at HP, by, by any instance, I mean, it was one of the, I learned it was one of the most uh, important positions in the company. A problem manager is actually the CEO of, of its own product line. I was a problem manager at HP for consumer notebooks. So my function was to deal with the business unit, to talk about logistics, to talk about service, to talk about roadmap, to talk about configurations, stuff like that. By the other hand, going to the country, uh, looking out to the, to the country level, I need to work with uh, the problem managers in the country to understand the market needs, to understand marketing, to understand sales, to understand different goal to market. So the interesting part of uh, being a product manager at, H at HP is uh, you are accountable for your PNL, you're accountable for your product line, but you're not responsible for everything. So you need to develop the influence capacity, capability to influence people from different areas to make sure your product line is going to be successful. So HP is uh, actually a great school for product managers. I mean, I've been in that position and I, I, I totally recommend someone to be in a company like uh, HP with this kind of uh, structure because it's where you understand how difficult it is uh, to manage a company. You are, as I mentioned, the mini CEO, you have accountability for the results, but you need to influence people. So it's a great school. At Rico, uh, used to have it more centralized in the region. And um, what, what I was trying to do is change the problem manager from the technical guy and to become more the market guy. So understand the go-to-market. Let me give you an example. Um, there is one country where there was a big opportunity. Uh, this country is Peru. We are, uh, it's the third country for a specific product line. And we are not even scratching the surface in terms of market share. We're number five or number six. So I asked my problem marketing team to work together with the, the field uh, team and understand what was going on. So we realized that uh, most of the sales in that particular category was being done in government. So then I asked uh, the, the local team, hey guys, what's your go-to-market strategy in terms of government? Do you have, what I mean about go-to-market, do you have a specific sales, sales reps actually uh, to go out uh, to government, federal, uh, state, uh, or even uh, in the city, or do you have a channel that does that? What's your goal to market? And then they said, no, we don't have. I mean, uh, we never sold to government or our strategy to sell to the government was very reactive. So, well, but you have a problem because 90% of your market actually is government today. So that's things that I, I think it's important for the problem manager to do is to peel the onion, go market by market, understand how it works, 
not being just the specialist uh, in, in terms of the technology, but understand the market, understand the problem. Because what happens is usually sales is telling you, we need more discount. And, and me being right. uh, the, the owner of the problem management PNL, I cannot give you more discount, especially because your problem is not price. Your problem is go to market. So that's the kind of uh, peel the onion that I was talking about. So, sorry, uh, actually, the initial ask, ask, uh, question was the structure, right? So I used to have problem marketing, I used to have uh, marketing communication, and I used to have a solution team. So that was my last structure in terms of team, for, especially for the regional uh, level, which was around 20, 20 people in the region. Okay, so, so you had product marketing, communication, and solutions, and you had 20 you had 40 to 50 people total in Latin America. Your product marketing people were the ones who really would know the country. So you had, but you had them regional, not in country. Yes. So in, in, in this company, Rico, they need to work with the field. They need to work with the country manager structure. At HP, we could afford to have a product manager in the field. So uh-huh. problem manager in the regional level was talking to the problem manager in the field. In Rico, the problem manager in the regional level was talking to the country manager in the field. So it's just a matter of structure, but usually you need to talk to someone in the field because they are the ones, so you can help them to ask the right questions. Are you on the right way? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? But the local people are the ones who are going to answer those questions. Yes or no, who is your competition? I mean, some data you can leverage regionally or globally. Sometimes we also got information from Japan, uh, from Rico. So the data you can have, but the local understanding needs to be local. Either a problem manager or a country manager or someone in the country sales sometimes that are the ones who can help you to understand the situation because that's the most important function of the problem manager is to understand the market, not the product. The product okay, is so, so they're really your market strategists that you have. They know they have to figure out how to go get the information and then how to position it and then and and measure it. You nail that, that's and how exactly. many product manager, how many product marketers did you have working for you? So it, it depends on the on, on the time. I think the last one was about uh, seven or eight, uh, probably depending on how many uh, product lines you, you you carry. Because at Rico, okay. you know, I used to, to to handle not only the office printing but also the industrial printing. Uh, you we also have uh, what we call communication services uh, like interactive whiteboards uh, for meeting rooms, solutions for meeting rooms. And, and then uh, that's the second group or the third group I mentioned, the solution teams, because sometimes your product's just one component of uh, what of your offer to the customer. By the end of the day, you need to integrate a solution from different vendors and put them all together because your customer, they want a one-stop shop. They want to talk to someone who is going to solve my problem. They don't want to buy the projector from this guy, the interactive whiteboard from this one, the Zoom from that one. No, they want someone who can handle everything uh, and make sure that everything connects, right? Uh, I mean, uh, everything, uh, you press a button, you're starting your Zoom section. You don't need to think about if uh, this is compatible with that. No, no, that's why a solution team is is important. So at Rico, uh, the third uh, group I used to handle, actually we created during my tenure there, uh, I stayed there for five years about, uh, was to create uh, those kind of solutions. Uh, So integrate different solutions, sometimes Rico products, sometimes third-party products, but to integrate them into a single uh, point of contact for the customer, one-stop shop. Okay, so this, they would be a resource for the salesperson then when they're working with a client that wants a specific solution, they could come to the solution partner who would be efficient at putting together Absolutely. What the, the answer Absolutely. is. And, and okay. uh, I would say the, 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 the team in the field that work most with them are what we call the pre-sales. The, uh, so you have a pre-sales, basically a technical salesperson who is who is uh, the one who understand how to how how the solution operates how the solution works obviously supported by the regional product manager 
but they are the ones who actually are going to have the technical discussion with the customer. So the salespeople, they are approaching the customer, they are talking about pain points, they are talking about uh, business, but there is a point in time that you need to talk about the solution, you need to talk about technology, basically. And then the, 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 the pre-sales, uh, the, the technical pre-sales comes to support sales uh, in that job. Okay, and then they lean on the solutions provider that will say, okay, this is what they need. Rico doesn't have it, so I'm going to go find something else that would integrate in with what we have. Now, how many people did you have in that area? In, in pre-sales, you mean? In the solutions department. So it was around five people, probably. So one uh, IT infrastructure, one talking about process automation, uh, one talking about 3D printing. Uh, and uh, there are two more, so around five plus a manager. So that, and then, and then you had the communications area that reported into you. So I'm, I'm drilling down in this because I think we can make a lot of leaps as to no matter what size you can, you can focus on this. So tell me about your communications people and what they did. Okay, so communication is responsible for the content. So let's start uh, defining what communication for marketing communication means for me. I think uh, marketing communication, you have two big functions. Actually, that's not something I say. Is someone, a C, actually the former, a former CMO I worked for, uh, actually the CMO of Adobe, she's still there. I mean, uh, is her own definition. I mean, uh, marketing has uh, brand awareness and demand generation. Actually, the two things, they complement each other. Uh, I think they are the same, but in different phases of the customer journey. Mm-hmm. Brand awareness, by example, um, I wish we can only live with a brand awareness and have no demand generation at all. Actually, very <laughs> few companies can do that. One of them is Apple. That's mm. that, right? I mean, it's very few companies can actually do that. You're not going to see um, a Christmas ad or, or even better, uh, I mean, uh, Thanksgiving ad uh, uh, talking about discounts on Apple or something like that. I mean, it's very mm. difficult to see that because their brand is so strong. There is so much desire from a consumer point of view to have that product that you have very little, uh, very few work that you need to do on the demand generation portion. But as I said, very few companies can afford that. So the the point is the brand generation is, uh, or or positioning, uh, sorry, brand awareness or positioning is uh, a long-term. It's something you need to create. You need to work on that. But you're not going to see demand generation immediately if you work only on, on brand awareness. I mean, it's going to take some time, but you need to do. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a very hollow strategy in demand generation if you don't have the other part. So for me, they, are, they work together, they work in conjunction. Um, okay, so can you tell me what Rico did for brand awareness and positioning? Okay. So the first one, and, and that, that's very particular from Rico because Rico is a Japanese company and uh, they don't have a global governance uh, on that very strong. They're trying now to make mm. that, but uh, mm-hmm. by the time I was there, I mean, each region, they have their own marketing departments. They can create their own brand awareness campaign and, and do that, that they rely on the, on the regions to do that. Companies wow. like- the so there was totally no, different. there was nobody- global corporate creating content that you could take and adapt or modify so everybody was creating their own stuff exactly yeah Uh, that that's probably a problem because then you've got different messages going out well uh depends on uh, rico believes that the regions knows their market better than uh, someone sitting uh, in japan right so they 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 believe that uh, giving autonomy to the regions is the best way I would say uh, should be in the middle uh, because I did that yeah. as arriving late in America. It's a funny story because my first weeks at Rico, I went to the countries. I sit with the marketing manager and ask them, hey, what do you do? Oh, we do product brochure. We do collaterals. Uh, it's funny. I'm coming from another country. They do exactly the same. Isn't the problem the same? So there's yeah. some things that you can actually uh, leverage, but uh, there are others that you cannot. Right. So, it depends on the company. As I mentioned, Rico, uh, because it's a Japanese company and, and it's Rico, is their culture is to give regions more freedom. Adobe and HP, forget about it. I mean, it's totally different. But I did a lot of things at, at, at HP, especially when it was like special programs for Latin America. 
So I would say. Yeah, so let me just pause there because that's what you're making a really good point is that different companies have different philosophies of how they come out with their brand building awareness and positioning. Now, I have a bias. I think if you let too much on your corporate positioning go out to the regions, then you're not getting a global brand that's going out there. So picking out your differentiators, know what things as a corporation you're trying to do, like your mission, your vision, and your your positioning and your differentiation can come from a corporate. And then if you create the content once, you're saving a lot of money by not having to recreate it. I think an excellent podcast interview that I had earlier was with Rotary International when they were trying to, to, to pull in from their localized markets into a global brand and how they leveraged that. They, they, that was a, a wonderful example. Patrick Nunes talking about that. But back to you. Okay, so awareness. You had everybody in the, in the different countries creating the same brochures and messaging. Yeah, so the, one of the first thing I said is, okay, so let, let me do the, the following. Uh, if I create this brochure for you, which is a pro brochure, by the way, uh, makes sense for you? Oh, yes. I just, uh, I, I just do that because nobody's creating that from a global level or from a regional level. So I took that. One thing, interesting thing I did at Rico that I think is, is I tried to replicate something I did at HP is, okay, let's talk about what do we need as a marketing organization? Because we need to create a lot of content. Let's not create... Uh, not, let's not reinvent the wheel every country uh, talking about the same thing. Let's think about what we need to do as a company in the next uh, year or two years in terms of content. Let's, let's talk about the solutions we create, like uh, process automation, like uh, management of things, like uh, so different solutions we need to create. So we not only need to create content for the solutions, but we also need to create thought leadership content. So when, when you're in a B2B, uh, especially in the enterprise segment, I mean, the customer want to be educated by the company. So tell me more about automation. Tell me more, more about artificial intelligence. Uh, what are the difference? So you need to create this kind of content. Then I, uh, I invited the, the local teams to say, hey, we need to create all of that content. Let's create a map, let's create a schedule, and let's see what, what kind of content we need to create as a region. And then forget about the country. Who wants to volunteer to create content for this? Ah, I want, okay, so you're going to be responsible for that. As a region was obviously overseeing, as the head of the region was overseeing everything, but I tried to delegate more to the countries. I tried for, for them to understand they are contributing more to the region and not only for them. And that in particular happened during the pandemic because as the pandemic started, every single country was doing a webinar. I said, no, let's not do that because uh, let's go to the first, very first question you asked me. I mean, Latin America, 90% speaks uh, Spanish, right? I mean, not in population, but uh, 99% uh, of the country speaks Spanish. So let's do, if we need to have to do a webinar, let's do a webinar about subject A, one about subject B, another about subject C, another one about subject D. And by the way, we have the industry. We need to do something for retail. We need to do something for healthcare. We need to do something for education. So who is the, who wants to do this one for education? I want, okay, so you're going to be the person or the professional who is going to develop that for the entire region in Spanish. Obviously the only work I need to do was later on to duplicate that in Portuguese, but I could, do more with less resources. So that's something I did. So it, it's a change of, uh, it's a management change. Uh, you need to change the culture of the company, but first you need to gather the trust of the countries. You know, so they need to understand they can still, because let's be honest, we are marketing people. We want to create things, right? We don't want to get a, a global campaign and just translate and that's the campaign. No, we want to mm -hmm. add value. Okay, but let's do that in an organized fashion way. Let's do that because that's the only way we can do more with less uh, resources that we have right now. And we can be more effective because that's what the company is asking us. You need to do more. So that's wow. Okay, so you don't even need to go listen to the to the rotary one, although you might find it interesting. But exactly what you were talking about is how do you how do you maximize the output of the team that you already have across the whole region or across the whole language if you you know happen to be 
And, and something that happens uh, very spontaneously, you're going to see people who has a specific interest. So remember, people in Peru, they are very interesting, interested in, uh, in education. People in Argentina, sometimes because you have uh, good customers, sometimes you have uh, a good leader, local leader, or just the marketing person likes that subject. So uh, somehow yeah. they are going to pick something that they like. So uh, it's mm -hmm. very, it's for someone that likes education to talk about finance is very difficult. Uh, so FSI. So by doing that, they can also exercise what they're passionate about. So that's a great uh, solution. I use that at HP and I use that at uh, Rico as well. That is fantastic. You brought a lot of good big picture thinking in there. Now, okay, so that was awareness and how you create content and leverage your people. What did you do on the demand generation side? Okay, that's the hard part. Yes. <laughs> the generation, it's not easy. You need to have a good content. You need to have thought leadership. You need to think about the customer journey. But uh, obviously, digital marketing has changed, the, obviously, the way we do marketing, right? So the first question uh, I used to have, uh, so I need to actually to convince uh, each country because that's something different I had at Rico than I had in other countries, in, in other companies. HP and Adobe, I used to handle the regional budget and I need and I used to distribute the budget across the countries according to the revenue or according to the potential or something like that. In Rico, each country has their own PNL and they are responsible for setting apart some marketing budget. So I need to convince the country managers that they need to spend money on digital. Uh, they, they need to spend money on demand generation. So the first thing we did was the reverse waterfall. <laughs> so we used to have those solutions or those new solutions that we need to sell. Uh, we knew that we need to sell X amount of revenue or in terms of dollars, uh, which translating to X amount of deals, like um, just an example, 100 deals. We knew that from those 100 deals, 10 are going to be big deals, 80 are going to be uh, small or, or medium, something like that. So by the end of the day, we came together with sales to define, hey, we need to sell X amount of solutions that are going to generate X amount of dollars in, in the region. And we had that number by country. So I was telling them, so this new solution that we created during the pandemic, for example, uh, you need to, to sell 100 solutions. And to sell 100 solutions uh, across the year, so probably 12 years is going to, have to be something like 10, more or less, by month, you need to generate X amount of opportunities, right? We, we, and, and to generate that amount of opportunities, you need to generate X amount of marketing qualified leads. Uh, and to generate that amount of qualified leads, you need to generate that amount of leads that needs to be qualified somehow. So we worked on this reverse waterfall, and then we realized that we had a gap in demand generation. So we are not generating enough leads to fulfill that number of opportunities that are going to represent uh, that, that specific revenue. So we talk about, we discuss with them, hey, how are we going to do that? So there are different tools we have. We have email that we are going to provide to the content regionally, but you need to define but remember, email is not just email, it's the database. And database, I cannot handle that for you. Each country needs to handle the database locally because they, they, they are the one who owns the database, right? They, we have the systems, we have the content, so on, but they need to handle the database. So that's one option. The other option is paid ads. So you can put paid ads uh, uh, in different ways. I mean, the one I like the most uh, is uh, SEM. SEO was in the original uh, something we concentrate regional, but SEM you can do locally or paid ads. So depending on, uh, so, and, and that's not something that's not exp much expensive, right? So we try to, to work with the country managers to show them the value of different tactics and uh, the ones that works the best. But we used to say, but don't create the content. If you want a specific content, let me know. We're going to build that regionally leveraging all of the countries that we have, all the resources and the, and the talent that we have uh, in the region. But you need to take the decisions about how we're going to demand generation locally. The only thing I can tell you is that we're not generating enough demand for the new solutions we're creating. Because remember, Rico is a printing manufacturer. That's what, what they do. And, and, and that's something we never had problems by generating demand. 
The problem generated demand are the new solutions, the new products we created to transform the company from an office printing company to a digital servicing company. That was the goal that we had that, by the way, was set by Japan, by the headquarters. So the vision and the, we had it in a global way, but we need to, to translate that locally somehow. And we need to demand, generate demand for those new solutions. So the local team were responsible, the marketing person plus the country manager was responsible for defining the strategy uh, or act more the tactics, how to get into the market and, and to generate demand. And then you have attribution, then you have, I mean, ROI, you have um, other things that it's very difficult to, to sometimes to measure, but I mean, you need to start from some point in time. So that's so fa fascinating is, is, is that the content, which was an extension of the awareness, you would create it a regional. And then if you found things that worked, you were sharing that information across them, but they had to keep their local database and then they had to decide where to allocate their spending. Can you talk a little bit more about SEM, SEO and paid advertising? Sure. So what, what SEO uh, means uh, is search engine optimization, what that means. If let, let's talk about Rico. So Rico produced printers and multi, uh, all in one uh, multifunctionals, right? So if I type multifunctional, I want Rico to be the number one in the Google list, right? Uh, that's what I want. But in order to be there, it, it, this is a very complex subject. There are SEO experts. I mean, I hired one uh, before I left the company actually. Uh, and sometimes you can outsource that with an agency only working on SEO. So what are the keywords? I mean, uh, long tail. There are a lot of tactics that you can use. Uh, for example, having video, different uh, kind of content that are going to increase your SEO. So sometimes, so whenever someone type printers or computers or whatever, I mean, you're going to be in the first. But if you do an audit, you're going to see, hey, I'm not doing, not being the first on that. Uh, on Google, I'm not even in the second or third page, I'm in the fourth page, who actually goes to the fourth page of Google, nobody. So SEO is very complex, but, and it's, it's long time. So you really need to invest on SEO because that's uh, something you need to have. Uh, it's a must, it's part of, uh, it's more connected to your brand rather than to demand generation. And, and uh, in order to, to work on more on demand generation, you have SEM. So if you're not getting to the first uh, lines of Google, then you need to pay. So, so whenever I pay printer, it's going to be an ad on the top of that with Rico uh, advertising. Or you can even go further. You can put your competition there, Xerox, for example. You can, whenever someone types Xerox, uh, it's going to appear a, pre, a Rico ad on top of that. So those two strategies, uh, they work together, but from a regional perspective, SEO is more for the region, is a long uh, term, and mm -hmm. the SEM is more demand generation, it's more local. So then you start defining what the region does and what the, the country does. Otherwise, everybody's going to do the same. You don't scale, you don't have, I mean, it's going to be a complete- Did, did each country have their own website or did you have a regional website with drop down and pick the country? In the past, you used to have 12 different websites. Uh, oh. As I left the company, you used to have one website, but they have, uh, they, you can uh, actually define the country you're going to be. Uh, so, they, so it's the same uh, website when you go but then you change the, the flag or the country and you can go yeah. to the local. But the content, I would say 99% is going to be exactly the same. So very, very okay. few variations. So five years ago was totally different. I mean, countries were managing the website. That's not, that's not what they need to do. So yeah. the website, especially because it's a long-term strategy and it demands a lot of content creation. I mean, videos, uh, a lot of text, thought leadership, uh, white papers, uh, customer case needs to be handled in a regional level, at least, if not globally. Okay, that's what I wanted to get into, because SEO seemed like it would be at a regional or a global level, because Correct. you're you're managing that. Now, okay, so then you're, so for brand awareness, you brought a lot in to the regional level and all the content creation. And then the local company countries were deciding whether they were gonna do email campaigns or pay-per-click. Really is, is where they could allocate their money. 
and, and one thing, one of the discussions I used to have comes when it goes to social media, for example, because let's say you have the organic social media, which is fine. So then we can have local touch as well, too. But when you talk about paid ad on social, you cannot say one size fits all, because I remember talking to Guatemala, it's an example from Central America. They used to tell me, hey, Fernando, LinkedIn here uh, is more for jobs. It's not really for demand generation. Uh, in other countries like Colombia, they used to tell me, hey, no, here LinkedIn works well, but Facebook works, works the better, right? So each country needs to define what works the better. And, and to be honest, there is no way to know that. You need to experience. You need to experiment, sorry. You need to experiment and see what works and what does not work. So marketing is, is, is about experiment. So you're not, and the good thing is that you can invest a, a small amount of money and see what works. Um, but you need to be very smart because, uh, by example, I remember when he did a, a webinar, we want, we are short in terms of attendance for the webinar. And then we invest some, some dollars in, in social media to, to, to talk more about that. And I remember we invest some money in Facebook and some money in LinkedIn. Uh, Facebook actually was much better in terms of response, in terms of, um, in terms of leads uh, for, for the event, right? People that actually subscribe to watch the, the webinar. But the problem is that uh, once you start doing the qualification of those leads, you're going to see that there also are no qualified leads. Meanwhile, the LinkedIn one that was a few leads, um, more expensive, they were more qualified. So you need to take everything into consideration, but those are the discussions you need to have in a local level and you need to prove to them. You need to show the data. Hey, uh, you spent that amount on LinkedIn, that amount on, on Facebook. So Facebook, you have, you got a hundred uh, people and uh, on LinkedIn, you had 20, but let's see now the marketing qualified leads, where they came from. And when you analyze that, you're going to see that Facebook generates a lot of uh, trash, if you will, or not yeah. qualified to be more polite. And yeah. the other one generate more qualified, but but I'm not saying that that's the truth. You need to do that country by country. You need to do segment by segment. I'm, by example, uh, I think people tend to say LinkedIn is for business, Facebook is for pleasure, is for personal purpose. I don't agree with that. I'm the same person, and I I see Facebook and I see LinkedIn, and and uh, it affects me the the same way. So you need to be careful before. You say, this is for business, this is for personal, because uh, by the end of the day, the, the, the person is exactly the same. The only right. So Fernando, I'm going to jump in here because we are almost up to an hour. I haven't gotten to the personal questions, but I wanted to loop it back <laughs> and, and tie this up. I think I could go another few hours with you. So product marketing, you've got seven people on. They're your strategists. Solutions, you've got five who are pulling it all together. Communications, that leaves about 30, 40 people in that area then, right? Well, uh, it was about, uh, it depends on the, on the time where I stay there, but no, most of the team was in the field, right? I mean, regional was about 20. Uh, so, oh, okay. So you had about eight to 10 people in communications yeah. and then the rest were- Yeah, because you have half one in person the field, responsible half for content, region. one person responsible for SEO, one person responsible for marketing automation and campaigns one person responsible for events, so uh, one designer. So these are the different uh, functions that I used to have in the marketing communication team. Okay, okay. So half your people were in the field, half were at corporate, and that makes sense about how, how you did it. Now, was all your content created in Spanish? Yes. Actually, then, that, that was the key for the last campaign we created because uh, sometimes uh, Japan or uh, in, in Rico, but uh, sometimes at Adobe or HP receive those campaigns in English or in, in Japanese, that doesn't make sense at all. So because we're creating our campaign, we created the campaign, we started that in Spanish. And later on, I translate that into English just for people in Japan in, the, in North America to, to understand what we're doing. But the original language, as you mentioned, was in, in Spanish. And it was very easy later on to translate that into Portuguese because the, um, they functioned about the same. But doing a campaign in Spanish was uh, one of the key aspects of the, of the success of the, the last campaign we did. Yeah, yeah, and that's interesting because it was primarily a Spanish-speaking market, so you would create it. But if you go back and, and look, listen to Rotary, which had a different one, or you're talking about HP or Adobe, 
they created in English and then translated. So there, you know, you've just brought in so many different ways to handle. All right, let's let's jump into the personal questions. Okay. You know, I always ask, what's your favorite foreign word? Well, it should be Portuguese, saudade. Saudade means uh, that you miss something, but it's more like nostalgia. It's not just miss someone, but you can miss uh, a food, you can miss a flavor, something like that. So the word is saudade from Portuguese. That is great. And you know, in all the episodes that I've done, somebody else said the same word. Is a Brazilian I cannot find this word in any other language, uh, any other language in the world. That's why it's so unique uh, from us. Yes, yes. Now we got to start using it more and more in the U.S. so it can be incorporated into the English language. How about favorite Spanish, vacation? There is no, no relationship. Uh, there is no other related word for soldage. It's, it's, it's really Portuguese. Yes, yes, it is. And it's it's more than reminiscent from what I gather. And it's it, it brings up a big feeling. Correct. Yeah. How about favorite vacation? Well, I love Europe. I mean, uh, I'm Brazilian, so I, I, I have beach all the time. I, I'm, I'm original from Rio, so I live in Florida. So I have beach and the sun every year. So whenever I'm on vacation, I love to go to Europe. Uh, so that's my personal. What, what uh, part of Europe? Every time it's a different country. I mean, even Portugal is great. Spain is great. I mean, France, UK. Uh, my last one, I usually I, I land in a country and then I, I grab a car and, and then I go. My last one, I started in, in Venice in Italy. Then I went to Ljubljana uh, in Slovenia. Then I went to Budapest. Then I went to, to Austria. So I always make those crazy car drives or train drives, if you will. Yes, yes, that's fantastic. When I was 26, I quit my job and packed a backpack and drove or, and took the train. I got a year rail pass and took the train all over Europe. And so I, I did that for my 80s uh, when I was 80 is now 18. 18. I was going to say, you're, there's no way no, no. you're 80 now. No, no, so. no. It, no, no. I, because <laughs> in Brazil, you have a, a test uh, when you when you go to the university called vestibular. So usually do between, between 17, 18 years old. I remember, I'm going to review uh -huh. my, my, my age here because I remember uh, a day before there was a very great show called Rock in Rio. And I said, I cannot lose that show from a guy called Freddie Mercury. So I went there, I sang with Fred Mercury. And the day after that, when I was still a 17, I made this great trip to, to Europe with backpack and train. So it was an awesome time. 18, wow, 18. 18. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have any final recommendations for any marketing people or business owner or business leaders that are interested in doing international business? Well, I think it's, um, I, I think uh, business is business everywhere. You just need to, to be sensitive to the local culture, but it's not a monster of seven heads. I mean, you just need to be careful. You need to to consult local people, you need to ask the local guys, but also challenge them too. Because one thing I, I, I always remember working with Latin America, especially Brazil and Argentina, they used to say, no, no, here everything is different. Come on. Yes, it's very different. Uh, I would say, as I mentioned in the beginning, taxation, the banking system, uh, some, some things are different, but I mean, the fundamentals of the business is not, right? Scale could be different. So right. you need to be careful about infrastructure, about uh, scale. You need to learn a little bit more. The concept of business uh, is the same, but you need to, to look at the details. Those are the details that usually are the ones that people miss. Scale, infrastructure, taxation. Um, these are the ones that you need the local guys to help you out by the end of the day. 80% you can apply, but 20% you need to really do local because uh, it's going to be totally different. You've had tremendous experience working with these large companies, growing them in the Latin American country. You are currently looking for a new position. Do you want to tell us about that? And then how can people reach you? And we have about one minute to, to cover all that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I, I ended uh, with Rico by August, uh, and uh, I'm in some uh, kind of uh, some process. Hopefully, now 
in the beginning of the year, uh, I should land in one of those new positions I'm, I'm aiming. Should be high tech, <laughs> should be in B2B, but I'm looking uh, for uh, very soon to announce my, my new position. I mean, unfortunately, those process takes a lot of time, especially at the VP level. Uh, you need to talk to eight people sometimes, takes uh, months, and especially- It's just that, giving you uh, the opportunity to put it out there because now you've heard it. If you're interested in Fernando growing your Latin American a, country, you better sweep in quickly and get there him. There is a window <laughs> now that uh, that's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, and how can people reach you if they want to talk to you more? Well, uh, I'm in LinkedIn. I think it's the best way to reach me. Uh, so there you have uh, email. Then you can just ping me a message. I usually respond uh, to everybody that reached me at LinkedIn. And, and, and that's something I, I, I'm used to do. Uh, okay, so Fernando Mar Maroniene, M-A-R-O-N-I-E-N-E. At hotmail.com. Yes, fernando.maroniene at hotmail.com. Okay, and we'll put that or on the show notes. Just look for Fernando Maroniani. There is no other one, just me. Just you. Okay. Fernando, thank you so much for coming on the Global Marketing Show. I mean, you really have tied in marketing, different ways to do it, and how do you can you really focus on the Latin American countries? And I think that you did a good job of bringing big company and strategy and what they were doing into how can you apply it even if you're a medium size or a smaller company. So thank you so much. I do appreciate. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, uh, each one of us has a, a career and your career is made of the companies or the experience you had. And that's yeah. my uh, my path, right? My experience probably should be very different from someone that's on the B2C, like someone that work on, uh, I don't know, Coca-Cola, Telefonica, something very different. So this is my unique experience. That's my unique uh, uh, value proposition as well. Exactly. And for listeners, if you want to hear John Jove, he spoke about, uh, he was a former employee at PepsiCo. And so listening to him about a business to consumer and how they handle their global marketing is very interesting. So there are many, many episodes out there. There are across all different kinds of, uh, you know, marketing agencies and manufacturers and technology companies. And there, you know, we've had some state experts in on, on some of the resources that are out there to help companies. So go ahead and download the, the episodes that you want to hear from whatever listening app that you're on. And please share this episode with one person that you think could benefit from it. And uh, we will talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.